This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. And now, Novel Conversations, hosted by Frank Lavallo and Endnotes by Ted Schwartz. Hello, and welcome to Novel Conversations, a program about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each conversation, I talk to two readers about one novel, and together, we summarize the story for you. We'll introduce you to the characters, tell you what happens to them, and we'll read from the book along the way. And at the end of our conversation, I talk to our researcher, Ted Schwartz, for Endnotes. Ted always has something interesting to tell us about the novel and the author. So, if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Today, I'll be having a conversation about the novel, The Pearl, by John Steinbeck. And I'll be joined in conversation by our Novel Conversations readers, Ildi and Scott Rich. Ildi, Scott, hello. Hi, Frank. Hello, Frank. Ildi, Scott, before we get started, let me read a brief introduction to today's novel, The Pearl. Written by John Steinbeck and originally published in 1945 as a magazine story, The Pearl is the story of Kino, a poor but proud pearl diver living at the water's edge with his wife, Juana, and their infant firstborn son, Coyotito. But the pearl is also the story of a way of life, a life lived by generations of pearl divers, a life lived in harmony with nature, with the water, and mostly a life lived with the oysters and the pearls. But the life of Kino and his family is changed forever when he finds the largest, most perfect pearl ever to be taken from the ancestral sea, a pearl he calls the pearl of the world. How Kino, his family, and his life are all changed by this discovery make up the story of our novel, The Pearl. With that introduction, Ildi, let me ask you, is this the first time you read The Pearl? No, I think I read The Pearl when I was in junior high, and I remember it left a great impact on me. I remember it being very sad, it was a parable, and I learned a lesson and never forgot it. And I know it also had an impact on you when you reread it again recently. Absolutely. Even though I know what's coming, I still was greatly affected emotionally. Scott, let me ask you, is this the first time you read The Pearl? This is my second reading. I read it a summer ago, laying in the hammock over the course of a couple of days, and again this morning just now. Several days, Scott? This is such a short novel. What did you read? One or two words a day? Well, a hammock day and a sitting at the table reading day are very different things. This is a very short novel, though. Yes, it is. Scott, let me ask you, did reading The Pearl affect you the way it affected Ildi? It certainly leaves a profound impact especially the closing few pages. We're told that this is a parable that should be applied to pretty much every person's life in any time in any place. Well, I totally agree with that. I don't think it matters where this novel is set. The lessons that we can learn from it are clearly universal. All right, Ildi, how does our novel start? Well, the novel starts with a beautiful scene of contentment in this tiny little brush house in the town of La Paz, we are given the sights and sounds that Kino and his wife and young son awaken to. I think they may be a bit romanticized. It's more of a waking up in a dank, damp, dark hovel and making the most of it. Yes, Scott, Kino refers to the air as dank and poisonous in the dark, but then he also thinks of the dawn as coming quickly, a wash, a glow, a lightness, and an explosion of fire that arose out of the gulf. And then also, don't forget the line, it was a morning like other mornings, and yet perfect among mornings. Absolutely. But Ildi, this morning is not going to remain perfect for long. Evil is going to enter this brush house. That's right. Coyotito, the little baby, is hanging in a box where he sleeps, and it's suspended by ropes. And 
climbing down one of the ropes headed straight for the baby is a scorpion. When Kino sees this, the song of evil comes into his mind. Tell me a little bit about the song of evil and how Kino thinks about the different rhythms of his life in terms of songs and music. Well, Steinbeck writes that Kino's people had once been great makers of songs so that everything they saw or thought or did or heard became a song. So that in the morning, Kino was listening to the song of the family and everything was safety and warmth and wholeness. And now, with the entrance of the scorpion, evil has entered into that song. And Scott, what happens with the scorpion? Kino and Wana freeze so as not to spook the scorpion. And the baby sees it and treats it like it's a toy and reaches giggling towards it. And that disturbs the scorpion. And the scorpion freezes, raises its stinger. And then Steinbeck writes, Kino's hand leaped to catch it, but it fell past his fingers, fell on the baby's shoulder, and struck. Then snarling, Kino had it had it in his fingers, rubbing it into a paste in his hands. He threw it down and beat it into the earth floor with his fist, and Coyotito screamed with pain in his box. And Ildi, as we were talking about the songs, the quote continues, his teeth were barred and fury flared in his eyes and the song of the enemy roared in his ears. Right, but as a mother reading this, I went right to, okay, what's Juana going to (laughs) do? And so... Like any mother, she reacts quickly and without thinking. She goes right over the baby, puts her mouth down over the puncture wound, and starts sucking and spitting, even as the little baby is screaming. And of course, Scott, the screaming of the baby brings the neighbors. And everyone knows exactly what's happened. They all live with this possibility. They all knew that an adult might be very ill from the sting, but a baby could easily die from this poison. Well, Ildi, you told us what Juana's first action was. Now, what's her second action? Let's go get the doctor. And Kino's response, the doctor will not come to our village. And Juana says, then we'll go to him. And in fact, that's what they do. They literally bundle up the baby and head out to the little town. And this is a big deal. A lowly peasant going to see the fat, rich doctor? Doesn't happen very often, does it? Not in this town. But it happens more often than the fat, rich doctor going to see the poor peasant. Correct. He thinks it's beneath him. He has daydreams of when he, for a short time, lived in Paris and thought everything was perfect there. And now he's living in this third world nation as the only doctor around. He's wealthy and has everything he can want, but it's not the same. And Scott, what's the doctor's first reaction when he's told that there's a peasant at the door with a scorpion bit baby? Do they have money to pay for my services? (laughs) Of course, that's always the first question. Well, do they have any money? Of course not. These people never have money, says the doctor's servant. Well, Kino tries. He pulls out some small misshapen seed pearls, which everyone in the town knows are almost valueless. Kino had handed those over to the doctor's servant. The servant took them to the doctor. In the next scene, the servant is back at the gate, opens the gate just barely enough to slide the little pieces of paper full of the misshapen pearls back to Kino and then quickly slams it shut out of shame. While telling him, sorry, the doctor's gone out. To a serious case. Yes. Very quickly out of anger, Kino punches the gate with his fist until it's bloody. And then they head to the boat, hoping that maybe today's the day we'll get rich finding a great big pearl. And pay for a doctor. That's right. They go down to their old canoe, push off, and Kino has to go pearl hunting. They describe the canoe as at once property and a source of food. And Steinbeck describes it, the bulwark against starvation. For a man with a boat can guarantee a woman that she will eat something. And this canoe that Kino has is a family heirloom. It was passed down by Kino's grandfather, and each man in this lineage had lovingly, painstakingly varnished it, cleaned it, protected it. Every year it's refinished. And the family and he head out into the waters to find a pearl, like they do every day. What's happening with Coyotito at this time? Well, the swelling on his shoulder has gone 
up his neck and under his ear, and his face is all puffy and feverish. So Juana has made a poultice of seaweed and applied it to the baby's swollen shoulder. And as she's doing that, she's praying. But she's not praying directly for the recovery of the baby. She's praying that they might find a pearl with which to hire a doctor to cure the baby. And Ildi, while Juana is praying for Coyotito, Kino is diving overboard, searching for oysters, hoping to find that pearl. Right, and in his head is the song of the pearl that might be. Well, Scott, does the song of the pearl that might be help Kino today? It does. He's picking up little oysters and clusters of medium-sized oysters and putting them in his little basket. He happens to catch a glimpse underneath the ledge of a great big oyster. Its shell is partly open, and he sees a glistening gleam inside of it. And Snyberg wrote, His heart beat out a heavy rhythm, and the melody of the maybe pearl shrilled in his ears. He immediately heads up to the boat with his great big oyster, puts it down in front of Juana, And he's afraid to even say what he thinks he saw. That's right. He doesn't even want to open this oyster at the beginning. He starts by opening some of the smaller oysters that he brought up. He thinks that opening the big oyster right away might jinx his chances of it being in there. So to be prudent, he has to open a couple of the little ones first before they dive into the big one. But eventually the siren song of the pearl that might be makes him reach for this oyster. And Juana looks at him and says, open it. Well, Ildi, Juana said open it. Well, Kino lifts the flesh of the oyster up, and there it lay, the great pearl, perfect as the moon. It was as large as a seagull's egg. It was the greatest pearl in the world. And Scott, finding this huge pearl is not the only miracle on the boat. No, Juana looks at the baby and is astonished to find that the seaweed poultice she had put on him as they got in the boat has taken the swelling away. The redness has gone down, the swelling's gone down, and the baby's starting to look like he might be just fine. And Scott, at that moment, Kino lets out a huge, loud roar. He puts his head back and howls. The news of this pearl must spread like wildfire through the town. Everyone probably wants to see it. Oh, it spreads madly, and everyone is amazed and then immediately falls into thinking of themselves. If only I had a pearl like that. And Steinbeck writes, The news stirred up something infinitely black and evil in the town. The black distal it was like the scorpion. The poison sacks of the town began to manufacture venom, and the town swelled and puffed with the pressure of it. So the priest thinks about how there are repairs necessary to the church. Or the shopkeepers think, ooh, men's clothes have to sell. The doctor... Well, the doctor's always thinking of himself. Doctor thinks this is his ticket back to Paris. (laughs) Yeah, and the beggars even think no almsgiver in the world is like a poor man who's suddenly lucky. So each person is just instantly thinking of himself and is greedy. But Ildi, tell me, what does Kino see when he looks into this pearl? He sees, one, he and Juana can finally get married. Officially. Officially. In the church. Two, their whole family can get new clothes. With shoes that have laces. Three, he can get a harpoon. Four, he can get a rifle. And five is that Coyotito can go to school and learn how to read and elevate them out of the station that they are living in. Kino seems to fixate on this fifth possibility, the ability to give Coyotito an education, the chance for him to learn how to read, to know what's in the books of the rich men. Yeah, it wasn't necessarily the first thought that popped into his mind, but it's the one that really stays. And from here on out, anytime anybody may be a threat to him, maybe a thief that wants the pearl, he sees it as a direct attack against his son and his son's education. Well, he knows that ignorance is what keeps them in poverty. If the doctor has these books that have cures in it, they have no way of knowing whether they're being cheated or anything. They have no idea. So it's ignorance that keeps them down. 
And Ildi, it's about this time that Kino and Juana start getting visitors to their house. Of course. Who shows up first? The priest. And Scott, what does the priest want? The priest comes to greet them. He says, I heard you found a pearl. That's wonderful news. He asks them, have you given any thought to what you plan on doing with this? Juana says, we're going to get married in the church. And the priest tells him, that's very good. I'm glad your first thoughts are good ones. And he pretty much gives him a pat on the back and says, go with God and walks away. So he knows he's going to get his cut. But Scott, it seems that Kino's a bit concerned. As Steinbeck writes, Kino's hand closed tightly on the pearl again, and he was glancing about suspiciously, for the evil song was in his ears, shrilling against the music of the pearl. Well, as the priest shows up, he says that he hears it very distantly and very faintly. And when I read it, I wasn't sure if it was brought about by the priest or that there are evil things lurking in the bushes behind the priest, and as soon as the priest leaves, those start to swarm. Okay, well tell me about the evil thing that's lurking in the bushes. The doctor. No surprise there. Obviously he's heard that Kino found a pearl. Yes, but unlike the priest who's up front, the doctor pretends he has no knowledge of this pearl and is so apologetic that he was unable to help them this morning. He really would have liked to, but was unavoidably helping someone else. But Ildi, does he help? Well, Kino tells the doctor, the baby is nearly well now. And all this time, this suspicion is growing in Kino, and it's pounding in his ears. All he can hear now is the song of evil. Right. The doctor puts up a very convincing argument. Well, it might seem that the baby is getting better, but I know the poison could come back. And so Kino feels this rage and hatred towards this doctor melting into fear because, as Steinbeck says, Kino could not take the chance of putting his certain ignorance against this man's possible knowledge. And so he's trapped. He can't take the chance with his son's life. Well, in fact, the doctor makes sure that the poison comes back. Yes, the doctor mixes together a pill with this white powder and gives it to the baby and says he'll be back in an hour. The poison will probably have struck by then. Hmm, you can time it to the hour, can you? We're all pretty convinced that this is a poison that he's giving the baby. To make the baby worse, thereby forcing Kino to come back to him for more and more medicines. Yes. Yeah, you really think that this doctor's scum after he does that. <laughs> and Ildi, sure enough, just as the doctor predicted, Coyotito does get worse in an hour. That's right. The baby's face gets flushed, drool is coming out of his mouth, and he has spasms of the stomach, and he becomes very sick and starts vomiting. And right on time, the doctor reappears. The doctor assures them that they're very lucky indeed that he got there when he did, and that he has one more concoction to give him, which is water with three drops of ammonia. And then he tells them, I have beaten the poison. The baby will be fine now. But that's not all he says. He also says, and how are you going to pay for my bill? And when the doctor asks this, Kino involuntarily glances at the ground in his hut where they've buried the pearl. And the doctor took a mental note. That's where the pearl is being hid right now. But Scott, the doctor's not the last visitor to come to Kino and Juana's house that night. They get one more visit. Late in the darkness of night while they're sleeping, he hears controlled breathing within the hut. Who's there now? We don't know who's there, but Kino doesn't take a chance on who it is. Very quickly and quietly, he gets up and attacks whoever is in his house. He pulls out his knife just as he hears scratching at the ground, and he reaches out, feels cloth and the knife going through the cloth. And just like that, the stranger is gone. What makes it even more frightening is that we never know who that was that was in his hut. And I think that's really poignant because it's no one and it's everyone. 
and it seems to Kino that everyone is after him. Everyone is out to get him, and he's now become suspicious of everyone. But Ildi, not just Kino. Juana has a violent reaction now to the pearl. Right. She says that the pearl is evil. The pearl is like a sin, and it's going to destroy us. She asks Kino, and this is the first of a few different pleas, throw it away, get rid of it, break it between stones, throw it in the ocean, just bury it and forget it, Let's get rid of this thing. But Scott, what's Kino's response? Kino's thoughts go back to his son, his son's education. Getting rid of this pearl destroys the future he has in mind for his son. And he's not willing to even consider this. That's right. He says, this is our one chance. Our son must go to school. He must break out of the pot that holds us in. And Juana just cries. It will destroy us all, even our son. Right, but Kino cannot get out of his head. The promise of delight, its guarantee of the future of comfort and security, and is almost entranced with this pearl at this point. Kino comes in, tells Juana, do not speak anymore. In the morning we will sell the pearl, and the evil will be gone, and only the good remain. And the chapter ends with the line, and they began this day with hope. And if only it could remain that way. Well, that's a pretty ominous statement, Ildi. All right, Ildi, Scott, we said that finally Kino was going to take this pearl to town and sell it. How does that work? Terrible. Well, it turns out that there are many different pearl buyers, but there's no competition. There's really only one man who buys all the pearls, and he kind of sets the price for the pearls, and the many pearl buyers are just there to give the illusion of competition. But Ildi, the townspeople, the pearl fishers themselves, do not know that all of the pearl agents work for the same man in town. Right. They may have their suspicions, but... They clearly don't know. And they're afraid to rock the boat by causing any trouble. They think that could ruin everything in their lives. True. So essentially, if all these agents are working for the same man, it's really not going to matter which agent Kino goes to to sell his pearl. Right. No, they're all in collusion together. That's right. And as Steinbeck writes, the men who sat in their offices and waited for Kino knew what price they would offer, knew how high they would bid, and knew what method each of them would use. So really, he's thwarted even before he gets there. Well, Ildi, they've got to offer him something for this pearl. It's huge. It's the pearl of the world. They've got their excuses already lined up. What possible excuse could they have for not wanting to buy this pearl? It's too big. It's clumsy. Nobody could really wear something this big. It's just a curiosity. Maybe some museum might want to take it and put it in their collection of seashells. Yeah, and the color is just a little bit off. I've seen this before. This is going to just kind of fall apart and be all chalky and powdery in a few months. All right, I think you've both made your point. I see how this <laughs> is going to go. He's going to get stiffed, isn't he? Certainly. But they do offer him something. Yeah, I'll give you a thousand pesos for it. And Kino is just enraged. He says, it's worth 50000 and you know it, and you want to cheat me. Yes, they do. In fact, the merchant that he goes to calls in the other merchants and says, ask them how much you think it's worth, and they'll agree with me. And note, I haven't said anything to them about what price I offered. So the charade continues. Yes. Well, then tell me, Scott, what does he sell this pearl for? He refuses to sell it to these men. But I thought they were the only game in town. I'll walk to the capital if I have to. And the dealers glance quickly at each other and they know they've played it too hard and they know they're going to be disciplined for their failure. The puppet master is not going to be pleased with them. Their strings could be cut. But Scott, not everyone in the village approves of Kino's decision to go to the capital to try to sell his pearl. Kino's brother tells him, We do not know that we are cheated from birth to the overcharge on our coffins, but we survive. You have defied not the pearl buyers, but the whole structure, the way of life. 
and I am afraid for you. His brother also tells him if he goes to the capital to sell his pearl, he doesn't think that he's going to find any difference in the merchants there. And he says, here you have friends, and me your brother, but there you'll have no one. But Ildi Scott, Kino remains steadfast in his decision to sell this pearl and to get the best value for it. He continues to fixate on the chance to give his son something better than he's had. Right. The pearl is no longer the pearl itself, but the pearl is his son's future. But Scott, before Kino can take this pearl to the capital and sell it, there's another visitor to his house. Yes, once again, in the middle of the night, people come trying to find the pearl. And this time, actually, Kino is hurt. Yes. Well, this time, actually, Kino doesn't wait for them to come into his house. There is a fight outside, and when Juana comes out, she sees that Kino has been hurt as well. Kino is only half conscious, but the two potential thieves run away. It seems that at least one of them has been mortally wounded. And again, Juana begs Kino to get rid of this pearl. The pearl is evil. Destroy it now before it destroys us, she says. Smash it between two stones. Throw it away. Throw it in the sea. Send it back to where it came. But Scott, again, how does Kino respond to her? Absolutely not. He says he will fight this thing and he'll win over it. And we will have our chance, he says. And he pounds his fist on his sleeping mat. That's right. He says, no one shall take our good fortune from us. Believe me, I am a man. In the morning we will take our canoe and we will go over the sea and over the mountains to the capital. You and I, we will not be cheated. I am a man. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And so, Scott, that's the end of the discussion. They will wait till morning and they will sell this pearl. It appears that way. But first thing in the morning, Juana grabs the pearl and makes a beeline for the coastline. She wants to get rid of it as fast and as far away from her as she can. So she raises up her arm, ready to throw it. But meanwhile, Kino quietly tracked her. Steinbeck described it this way. He wrenched the pearl from her. He struck her in the face with his clenched fist and she fell among the boulders, and he kicked her in the side. He looked down at her, and his teeth were bared. He hissed at her like a snake. And Juana just stares at him with unfrightened eyes. She looks at him like a sheep before the butcher, and she knew there's murder in him, and it was all right. She'd accepted it, and she's not going to resist or even protest. And then that's when the rage leaves Kino, and it turns into disgust. He cannot believe what the pearl has just made him do. But Scott, his night is nowhere near over. Because once again, there's a scuffle in the bushes right next to him. Just as he turns away from Juana. And he has again to go for his knife to defend the pearl. And this time we know for sure the would-be thief is killed. And really, it's from the moment that Kino kills this man that they know their old life has changed and they need to leave this place. After all, the authorities will only be looking for an excuse to confiscate this pearl and to take Kino into custody. All this time, Juana had been trying to rescue something of the old peace that they used to have, the time before the pearl. And now they know it's never going to happen. And Kino leaps into action, tells her, go to the house, get Coyotito. I'll go down to the beach, we'll get the canoe in the water, and we'll leave this place immediately. Trying to make a hasty escape. That's right. But it's not going to be a very hasty escape, is it? No. When he gets to his canoe, he sees that the canoe that has been in his family for generations, lovingly, painstakingly cared for, 
has a hole broken into the bottom of it. And Ildi, this is beyond his comprehension. Mm -hmm. As Steinbeck writes, this was an evil beyond thinking. The killing of a man was not so evil as the killing of a boat. For a boat does not have sons, and a boat cannot protect itself, and a wounded boat does not heal. There was sorrow in Kino's rage, but this last thing had tightened him beyond breaking. He was an animal now. And it's so funny that as he goes back to his hut, it never occurs to him to take a canoe of one of his neighbors. But this hellish night still doesn't end. No, as he heads back to the house where Juan is getting the baby, he sees that his hut has been set to fire, and they quickly go and hide in his brother's hut. Ildi, I know it was scary before, but this is getting out of hand. It is getting out of hand, and when asked who has done this, they don't know. They say dark, evil, faceless figures are out to get him. It's almost like a nightmare, the whole thing. And as readers, we don't know if these are some of the rich men from the town, if these are some of the doctor's men. We don't know the if merchants. this is some of the merchant's men. We don't know if this is his next door neighbor. Right. The only person we know it isn't is his brother, Juan Thomas. Juan Thomas tells him that there is a devil in this pearl and that you should have sold it and passed on the devil. Perhaps he can still sell it and buy peace for yourself. And Kino replies that the pearl has become my soul. And he basically says, I have to leave. Well, Scott, I can only guess without a boat, without their canoe, they're going to have to walk out of town? Yes, in the middle of the night. That's right, Scott. They leave in the middle of the night, but they know they're doing the right thing. They skirt the town and they try to stay away from anyone that might recognize them. But the music of the pearl was triumphant in Kino's head. Oh, yes. It's a fairly arduous journey because they're still afraid they're going to be followed. So they're trying to keep the baby quiet, trying to hide their tracks, hide behind bushes as they move along. That's right. They've been trying to walk in the ruts of the road in order to hide their footprints. And Ildi, they do have something to eat. They're sleeping during the day. So far, so good, right? Right, but you get an ominous sense because now, as Kino is looking at the pearl, he notices that the visions that he sees in the pearl are changing. Steinbeck writes, He looked into the shining surface for his rifle, but he saw only a huddled dark body on the ground with shining blood dripping from its throat, which is the man he killed. Right. Then he also quickly thinks, We will be married in a great church. And in the pearl, he saw Juana with her beaten face crawling home through the night. So instead of marriage, he sees that he beat his own wife. And then, our son must learn to read, he said frantically. And there in the pearl, Coyotito's face, thick and feverish from the medicine. That's right. Actually, in Steinbeck's beautiful but terrible words, he says, The music of the pearl had become sinister in his ears, and it was interwoven with the music of evil. Right. And shortly thereafter... They hear something in the distance, and sure enough, three men are following them. Trackers. Two men on foot and one on a horse. Do we know who these trackers are? Never. We never learn. We just know they're after them. And they are certain in the wilds of the countryside, if they return with the pearl, they're not going to leave a witness to claim it was stolen from them. Well, Ildi, let me ask you, do they confront the trackers or do they try to evade the trackers? Oh, initially they try to evade them as best they can. They go so far as to zigzag their path now to try to mislead them or misdirect them but now in their flight there is a thread of panic as they climb deeper and further into the mountains they need water and so their options become limited and they end up taking cover in a cave above a small watery gulch for the night but they realize this is the only water around and almost certainly the trackers will be heading right here as well and in fact Ildi, that's what happens the trackers come to the same watering hole, although in the middle of the night, and they wait on the other side of it. Right, and Kino realizes he has only one option. 
if he doesn't do anything first, they're going to find them before the next day is out. Then what does he decide to do? He's got to kill them. Juana doesn't like this idea, but knows that it has to be done. And so she tells him he can't go out there with his white clothes on because they'll see him. So he strips. Ildia Steinbeck writes, Kino's own music was in his head, the music of the enemy, low and pulsing. But the song of the family had become as fierce and sharp and feline as the snarl of a female puma. The family song was alive now and driving him down on the dark enemy. He becomes very animalistic and primal. But Scott, before he goes off with the song of the enemy in his head, there is one tender moment. Steinbeck wrote, His hand fumbled out and found the baby, and for a moment his palm lay on Coyotito's head, and then Kino raised his hand and touched Juana's cheek, and she held her breath. And Scott, it's with those last tender moments that Kino slips out the mouth of the cave, and almost like a lizard, creeps up on these three men. Yes, he needles himself through the rocks, around bushes, and stealthily comes up upon them. And right then he realizes the moon is about to rise, and if I don't do something right now, these men will see me in the moonlight. And then, from above, came a little murmuring cry. Scott, what was that? That was young Coyotito crying in his mother's arms up in the cave. And that cry immediately gets the attention of the one tracker that's awake and wakens the other two trackers. Correct. But at first, they're not sure what that noise was. Right. They think maybe it's a coyote, which is a little bit ironic, seeing as his name is Coyotito. And raising his rifle, one of the trackers says, if it is a coyote, this will stop it. And as Steinbeck continues, Kino was in mid-leap when the gun crashed and the barrel flash made a picture on his eyes. His great knife swung and crunched hollowly. It bit through the neck and deep into the chest. And Kino was a terrible machine now. Right. He goes from being the human in the beginning to the animal in the flight. And now he's a killing machine. And in fact, he's able to kill all three men before anything else can happen. But what Kino's hearing now is not music. Kino realizes something is wrong because rising from the little cave is a hysterical cry, the cry of death. But Scott, at this moment, we're not told what that cry of death was. The next line takes us right back to the small town of La Paz. Yes, Steinbeck makes us wait for final knowledge of what happened in that cave. The next scene is the family returning to the village of La Paz and everyone steps aside as they solemnly return with a rifle in hand. And nobody really knows what has quite happened. And they walk straight through the town, straight through their village of huts, past their own burnt remains of what was their hut and to the seashore. And what people remembered watching them return is that Kino was not ahead of Juana like usual, but they entered the town side by side. Ildia Steinbeck writes, Kino had a rifle across his arm and Juana carried her shawl like a sack over her shoulder, and in it was a small, limp, heavy bundle. The shawl was crusted with dried blood and the bundle swayed a little as she walked. And at this point, the tears start to flow because you know Coyotito is gone. And then at the seashore, Steinbeck describes the scene. Kino heard the music of the pearl, distorted and insane. Kino's hand shook a little, and he turned slowly to Juana and held the pearl out to her. And Juana says, no, you. Kino drew back his arm and flung the pearl with all his might. Kino and Juana watched it go, winking and glimmering under the setting sun. They saw the little splash in the distance, and they stood side by side, watching the place for a long time. And the pearl settled into the lovely green water and dropped toward the bottom. And the very last line of our novel is, and the music of the pearl drifted to a whisper and disappeared. And that's how our novel, The Pearl, by John Steinbeck, ends. 
Scott, Ildi, during our conversation, we didn't get a chance to mention every character in our novel or get to every incident. So if there's a moment you'd like to tell us about or a quote you want to read, now's your chance. Scott, do you have something? I do. I have a couple things in mind. I want to dwell on several descriptions of what it means to be a man, as described by John Steinbeck. This ought to be good. (laughs) I'm going to piece together a couple things from a couple pages here. Kino put on his large straw hat and felt it with his hand to see that it was properly placed, not on the back or side of his head, like a rash, unmarried, irresponsible man, and not flat as an elder would wear it, but tilted, a little forward to show aggressiveness and seriousness and vigor. (laughs) There's a great deal to be seen in the tilt of a hat on a man. And he goes on later in the novel. Kino said, I am a man, and that meant certain things to Juana. It meant that he was half insane and half God. It meant that Kino would drive his strength against a mountain and plunge his strength against the sea. Juana and her woman's soul knew that mountain would stand while the man broke himself, that the sea would surge while the man drowned in it. And yet it was this thing that made him a man, half insane and half God. (laughs) I think I've known a man or two like that. Oh, of gods and men. (laughs) That's good. Ildi, do you have something for us? I do, actually. Kino's brother, Juan Thomas, talks about a time when the people of the village tried to swindle or tried to get the better of the pearl merchants. They tried to get a better price for their pearls. And he describes it as the old ones thought of a way to get more money for their pearls. They thought it would be better if they had an agent who took all the pearls to the capital and sold them there and kept only his share of the profit. So the people of the town pooled their pearls and started him off. And he was never heard from again. And the pearls were lost. Then they got another man, pooled all their pearls, started him off, and he was never heard from again. And so they gave up the whole thing and went back to the old way. But what's interesting is the reflection on this losing of the pearls. Steinbeck writes that the loss of the pearl was a punishment visited on those who tried to leave their station. Each man and woman is like a soldier sent by God to guard some part of the castle of the universe. And some are in the ramparts, and some are far deep in the darkness of the walls. But each one must remain faithful to his post and must not go running about, else the castle is in danger from the assaults of hell. And I think this is kind of an analogy for the whole novel, because Juana and Kino tried to stray from their station in life, and this is what happened. It's like a Hindu caste system. But Ildi, that sounds awfully fatalistic. There's another point where Steinbeck writes... Humans are never satisfied, and that when you give them one thing, they'll always want something more. And he says this is one of the greatest talents the species has, and one that has made it superior to animals that are just satisfied with whatever they have. To me, that line connotates some hope, that we can change our situation. Absolutely, I agree. It just should be tempered with moderation. You never want to bridge the gap into greed. I definitely can agree with that. Greed is certainly a great source of evil in this novel. Well, Scott, is it Kino's greed that you're talking about, or is it the greed of the townspeople once they saw Kino's pearl? There's a big difference between wanting to use what is justly and rightly yours and coveting what belongs to someone else. Yes, but at some point, the greed and other vices enter into Kino as well. You know, Ildi Scott, I think both opinions can be right. As Steinbeck told us at the beginning of this novel, in his preface, if this story is a parable, perhaps everyone takes his own meaning from it. I think we can at least agree that there are many meanings one can take from this novel. Absolutely. I surely did. And it's on that agreement that we'll end our conversation today about the novel, The Pearl, by John Steinbeck. Ildi Scott, I want to thank you both for coming in and having this conversation with me today. You're very welcome, Frank. It was painful, but it was worth it. It was definitely worth it.
I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and today I had a conversation about the novel The Pearl by John Steinbeck. Joining me now for endnotes on today's conversation is our researcher, Ted Schwartz. Hello, Ted. Hi, Frank. Ted, I understand that John Steinbeck's novella, The Pearl, is actually an elaboration of an old Mexican folktale that Steinbeck was aware of. Yes, in fact, there are many variations of it. Why did John Steinbeck want to tell us his version of The Pearl? Well, obviously it interested him. The reason he switched at that point to a story about Mexico, different culture, and so forth, was because with all the fame he had achieved on writing about what was going on with the migrant workers and so forth, he was also being accused of being a communist, and he had no political agenda when writing his previous books. This was such a radical break that he could tell an interesting story, an emotional story, and hopefully not be accused of having any agenda other than just a good read. Ted, in Steinbeck's version of The Pearl, he includes some interesting examples of the Mexican culture. You know, for instance, references to the music of the people. Did he get that right? Well, we're talking Indian culture in Mexico. And they had things such as the Song of the Family, the Song of Evil, ancient songs passed down from generation to generation that linked them instinctually with their environment. So this was simply a normal part of their daily life. And yes, by including that, he was making it come more alive as it would be lived. Ted, I understand he also tried to get in touch with some of the deprivation of the Mexican Indians. It's rather funny. He set up in Monterey, California, his desk and his typewriter in an unheated woodshed, apparently to get some of the feel of being cold and rather isolated, not having any of the normal comforts wrote nothing, accomplished nothing. His friends moved him downtown into a real office, and he was able to knock out the the villa in the normal way. (laughs) You're right, Ted. That is a good story. But I understand even in comfortable surroundings, he wasn't always able to write very easily. No. As with most writers, there is a point where you get sick of the project. And as he wrote, I've gone into a slump on the pearl, and that bothers me, even remembering that I always go into two or three slumps on every book. It's always the same, and it's always new. I never get used to it. (laughs) Well, Ted, written in a slump or not, The Pearl is still a very good story. He thought so, too. He later commented, it's a brutal story, but with flashes of beauty, I think. Ted, I agree with John Steinbeck. I found The Pearl to be both brutal and beautiful. I'm sure he'd be pleased. And before you and I move into a slump, (laughs) I think this is where we'll end today's conversation about the novel, The Pearl, by John Steinbeck. Thank you for bringing endnotes to us today about our novel. Always fun, Frank. I also want to thank our Novel Conversations readers, Ildi and Scott Rich. You've been listening to Novel Conversations. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo. Today I had a conversation about the novel, The Pearl, by John Steinbeck. And until next time, I hope you find yourself in a novel conversation. Hello, everyone. My name is Matt Neglia, and I am the host of the Next Best Picture podcast, part of the Film Entertainment Awards website, nextbestpicture.com. On our show, we explore all year long what is possibly going to win Best Picture at the Oscars. We do this by conducting interviews with people within the film industry, holding weekly reviews of the latest theatrical releases, and on our main show, where we dive into various different topics, answer your fan questions, and also do our best to explore Oscar history's past in hopes that it will tell us something new for this upcoming award season race. We hope that you will join us on all of the various podcasting networks. We look forward to seeing you over at nextbestpicture.com. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.